Hello, everyone, and welcome to HR Works, the podcast for HR professionals. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day to join us. I am the host of HR Works, Jim Davis, and editor of the HR Daily Advisor. This podcast aims to put valuable tools and knowledge into the hands and ears of you, the HR professional. Those tools will arm you with the best methods and strategies for attracting, motivating, and retaining top talent. Today's episode is brought to you by The Standard, a family of businesses united by a shared purpose of compassion for their customers. The Standard's goal is to proactively support companies and their employees for the unexpected by offering benefits such as disability, group life, and voluntary insurance, and more. The Standard is also committed to helping employers better understand industry trends. Their latest effort, the Behavioral Health Impact Study, uncovers the reality mental health and substance abuse can have on the American workforce. To learn more about the research findings and The Standard, visit standard.com forward slash BH podcast. And we are pleased to have Dr. Dan Jolivet, Workplace Possibilities Practice Consultant at The Standard with us today. Dan started working in the behavioral health field in 1980 as he was completing a degree in mathematical statistics and wanted to get some hands-on experience in an applied scientific discipline. His first direct service job in the field was a 1981 work-study position at a community mental health center in Seattle, where he quickly became hooked on trying to understand how people change. Dan has held a variety of roles throughout his career. He has worked in inpatient hospitals, residential treatment centers, partial hospitalization programs, intensive outpatient programs, employee assistance programs, and in private practice. He moved into supervision to multiply his impact and begin working in managed care soon after that. He joined the standard as its behavioral health director in 2016, and says his favorite part of the job is still helping people, both claimants and people on his team, find solutions to seemingly intractable problems. Thank you, Dan, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. Uh, just to get started, can you just describe how mental health relates to behavioral health and share how you think it's affecting the American workplaces? Sure. Behavioral health is an umbrella term that covers both mental health or psychiatric and drug and alcohol or substance abuse issues. So behavioral health is larger than just mental health. Behavioral health in general, though, has been greatly impacting American workplaces. It influences every aspect of a person's well-being, from their emotional health to their physical health and even their financial health. People with mental health issues have worse health outcomes than those without them. For example, they tend to have worse health overall. They tend to smoke, take drugs, eat less healthily, exercise less, and as a result, they die significantly younger than the general population. Of course, if your mental health issues impact your work, that's going to impact your finances since disability leave contributes to financial instability, especially if the leave is unpaid. So a recent study conducted by my organization, The Standard, called the Behavioral Health Impact Study, found that 39% of U.S. workers suffer from mental health issues. Now, obviously, this number has likely increased because of the global pandemic. We can definitely talk about that later in our conversation. But at minimum, we're talking about almost 40% of the U.S. workforce. In addition, we found that 61% of workers have missed a day of work or know someone who's missed a day of work because of a mental health issue. 
Probably most surprising to me was our finding that three out of 10 employees said they're less productive at their job because of a mental health issue. And one in 10 employees reported that their productivity is lower 20 or more hours per week. That's half the work week for full-time employees or 4, 5% of your entire uh, payroll. It's a, a significant impact. Before uh, we go on, I just wanted to clarify for our audience that there's a difference between having a mental illness and having uh, mental health issues. Uh, do you mind go, just describing that difference for us? Sure. To say that someone has a mental health issue generally means they've got some problem like uh, anxiety or depression. They may drink or use uh, drugs in excess. To become a mental illness, though, generally what we're talking about is it's got to be diagnosed by a mental health professional. So they have to meet specific diagnostic criteria. And most of those focus on the fact that the issue has gotten to the point that it's impacting your daily life, that's impacting your relationships, your social uh, network. It's harming your ability to work or play. So there is a, a threshold uh, for diagnosis or for mental illness that's significantly higher than just saying someone has mental health issues. Generally, when we say someone's got mental health issues, we mean that they are distressed or bothered by uh, issues like anxiety or depression. A diagnosis, though, is a step up in terms of uh, having having it so severe that you go see a provider or a doctor and that it is then diagnosed as uh, as a actual illness. Thank you for clarifying that. I, it's really important because, you know, unfortunately there's a big stigma surrounding mental illness and, uh, and sometimes, sometimes people don't understand the difference between mental health um, and mental illness. They may avoid seeking help um, just because they, they're afraid that that what they're experiencing is is either more than what it is, or just because of that that unfortunate stigma. Yes, uh, um, unfor unfortunately, stigma is still a tremendous issue. We uh, we uh, I think there's a general public perception that stigma is no longer a concern for mental health because you know celebrities are discussing their mental health issues but it simply isn't true for for example in our study we found that only 38% of workers are comfortable seeking help from their employers that in other words they conceal that they're <clears throat> struggling with a mental health issue because they don't want uh, people at work to find out. And that's the number one worry that was expressed in our survey was that people are worried first that their coworkers will find out and then subsequently may treat them differently or talk about them behind their backs. They're also concerned, though, that this will have a negative impact on their workplace, that the employer may pass them up for a promotion or may see them as, as being weak. One, one uh, person we uh, interviewed for our study uh, said to us, quote, beyond the generality of the stigma of mental health or substance abuse, I think people are concerned that they don't want to have anything tied to them. They don't want any additional reason why they might be the next one on the chopping block. People are very leery about showing any type of weaknesses whatsoever. And I, I think that's a great encapsulation of, of the concerns that people experience. Now, what, you know, those are obviously some of the struggles that people with mental health are experiencing at work. Um, are there other struggles too? Yes. Mental health in general 
uh, elicits a, a sense of shame that most people who are dealing with mental health or substance use issues feel shame for having them because this is a cultural myth that's a sign of weakness or that somehow that means you're bad. Uh, so there's already shame. Some people also struggle with denial, not, not really recognizing that they're having a problem. But the biggest issue is around stigma. We found that 8% of employers think their employer 8% of employees think their employer would get rid of them for having behavioral health issues. And in some industries, we found very high rates, particularly around substance use, where people are afraid that someone will find out because then their job, their employer would uh, fire them. Because of these concerns, we found about 10% of workers avoided seeing a doctor or a therapist because they didn't want this to get back to their work. And I, I often say that if we saw a similar kind of stigma around cancer, it would just be mind-boggling if people were saying, well, I don't want to go see a doctor uh, because I don't want anyone at work to find out because they might fire me or treat me differently. You know, that just would not make any sense. And honestly, mental illness, mental health, and substance use issues, those are medical conditions and it doesn't make any sense to treat them differently from physical issues like cancer. If people are avoiding getting help, um, and even those that are getting help, how, what was your understanding with how employers um, are doing handling these mental health issues in the workplace? It sounds like in many cases they probably wouldn't even know they were occurring. Absolutely correct. We What we see, uh, both in our surveys and our work with employers, is that supervisors and managers are frequently blindsided by these issues. They have no idea that someone's dealing with a mental health or substance use issue. They may just notice their productivity has gone down or they're uh, not as sociable as they were or they're coming in late or missing work. So one of the important things we try to teach supervisors and managers is to recognize that what may look like a performance or productivity issue may actually be a behavioral health issue and to proceed cautiously around that because you, you don't want to assume that someone is just uh, slacking off at work when in fact they may be struggling with depression or anxiety or another mental health issue. We also found employee, employees believe that the their uh, companies need to help employees with behavior, behavioral health issues. Uh, workers, by a large majority, believe it is important for workplaces to have a positive mental health uh, culture. We also found that they think it's in a company's best interest to do so, and our research really supports that. We know that uh, companies with very strong mental health and mental wellness cultures have better productivity. It also improves employee engagement, leads to better working relationships between employees, it increases staff loyalty and retention, and it contributes to positive brand awareness. So there are a lot of things that employers can do that really pay off both for the employee and for the employer. You mentioned, and I, I definitely wanna get into what some of those things are, um, but something you said reminded me of uh, something I heard when I was at SHRM a couple of years ago surrounding substance abuse. Um, and it's always stuck with me, which is that people that 
have such serious substance abuse uh, problems often have lost their family um, out of their lives. Not, you know, people that don't want to deal with them anymore, um, their friends, possibly even uh, their homes for five years before their employer, they lose their job. Um, and the reason I bring it up is because that means that the people that are on that slope, that downward slope, um, that are covering or handling their mental health issues with substance abuse, uh, their lives have crumbled often long before the last frontier, the last thing that's held together, which is their job falls away. And this is the state that an employer might find one of their employees. You know, you mentioned it being careful when you have to handle these things. I think it really helps contextualize uh, sort of the desperation that these people can be in. Yes, that's absolutely true. People often think that with substance use issues or mental health issues, that the person experiencing them don't doesn't really realize what's going on. And they'll say, don't, don't they realize they're going to lose their jobs? And it's important to recognize they do. People struggling with mental health and substance use issues do, do realize what's happening. And they not only you know, lose their jobs, but they lose their families, their relationships, they lose their health, and ultimately, often they end up dying. So it isn't a matter of not realizing the consequences, but it, as you say, it's really important for the uh, supervisor and HR people to realize they may be seeing the last area in which that employee is functional, that people often will do everything they can to prevent their issues from impacting their work life. So as you say, you may see people who have lost their relationships, they've gotten divorced, their families have disowned them. They may have lost their homes. They may be living in their cars. There are all sorts of uh, things that people will give up before they let go of their work. And it is important to recognize that you may see something who's re reasonably functional at work, but who is already really on the, the edge of falling into a vicious uh, circle where they may you know, lose their jobs and then really have nothing left to uh, hold them up. Um, I thank you for answering that. I think it, it really puts the emphasis on uh, the importance of employers not only getting it right, but just doing something, finding ways to help help these people. Um, what can organizations do to help their employees with mental health issues? Well, the good news is that there are lots of things that employers can do that it's it's possible to address, address and accommodate employees who are struggling with these issues. And we found that more than 90% of employees believe that people can recover from mental health issues, which is absolutely correct. Uh, the, uh, the expectation is recovery. More than 70% of people generally 
will be able to get over mental health and substance use issues. We also found that 77% of the people we interviewed believe that employees should be able to talk more openly about their mental health concerns in the workplace. But in order to be more open, you've got to have a positive mental health culture. And we found that that was the one thing employees said they wanted the most for their employee, from their employer was to create a work culture that fosters mental wellness. We Employees really want to feel like their employers are supporting their mental health and their ability to cope. And creating a positive mental health culture is key for that. Uh, what we found was that people who rated their employees as doing very well or excellent with this, they, they did four things that employees found useful. One was recognizing that mental health is as important as physical health. Two, improving employee access to mental health services and support. Three, providing work accommodations and flexibility. And four, raising awareness of these issues in the workplace. These actions all contribute to a positive mental health culture. And if you're aware that you have an employee suffering from, suffering from a mental health issue, one immediate way to support them is to provide some form of practical accommodation to help them at work. For me, the, the first and foremost uh, approach is to focus on employee assistant programs, or EAPs. That's something that most large employers have now, but they're severely underutilized. If you know or even have a sense that an employee is struggling, that's when you want to make sure they understand about accessing their EAP. When I'm managing people, uh, I ask supervisors to bring EAP brochures into their uh, meetings with any employee that's having a performance or productivity issue. Because when you're talking with someone, when the issue is, is uh, becoming clear, that's when you want to remind people about their EAP. That's when you want to give them the information and make it easy for them to reach out to uh, EAPs for help, the EAP for help. So that's, for me, the first and, and most important way. But it's also useful to make sure that you've got good access to therapy, uh, you're able to adjust work hours or reduce workload, or even provide time off for treatment or attendance at a support group. As an HR representative, manager, or organizational le leader, I really focus on three steps that people can take. The first and it seems simple, but it often really isn't. The first is to review your benefit offerings to identify which support mental wellness. If you're not aware of what you offer, then you can't communicate those support options effectively. The second important step is to account for how stressors may be affecting your employees and what can be done to support them in the workplace. As I said, that includes EAP referrals, but it may also include things like implementing additional accommodations, providing more flexibility. Um, I'm a big believer in raising awareness and having anti-stigma campaigns in the workplace, and also making sure that the benefits provide good access to mental health services and support. 
The third step I, I suggest for HR leaders and organizational leaders and managers is to ensure that employees know where to access benefits information and resources and who to contact for help. One of the jokes that many companies I've worked at has been that the company intranet is the place you put things to make sure no, no one ever finds them. <laughs> and, and unfortunately, that's often true. But you want to make sure that it's very, very easy for employees to find their EAP and to find other benefits that can support their mental wellness. It's very interesting that uh, 90% of people can come back because maybe a question I have is what about the 10% of people that can't be recovered? The So the, the data are somewhat unclear because there aren't studies that look generally just at people who are working. So generally when we're saying, you know, I, I typically say 70% of people with behavioral health conditions will recover and lead essentially normal lives. Uh, but when you look at a workplace, when you look at people who are already employed, employed, that goes up significantly. But when, if you talk about the people who don't recover, they still generally return to work. The average person with a mental health or substance use issue is going to recover at, at least to the uh, to the level of being able to work and have a reasonably normal life. What the problem is, is they are likely to have uh, a recurrence or a relapse. Mm -hmm. And uh, behavioral health conditions are like a lot of chronic physical illnesses, like you know hypertension or heart disease, where you have a long-term course with uh, occasional relapses. So even the people who don't recover fully are liable to go back to work and be able to work, although they may then relapse and need additional treatment or additional accommodations. So, it, you know, mental health issues don't preclude someone from working any more than something like uh, diabetes or heart disease or uh, any relapsing condition. We find ourselves in an interesting position these days, particularly when it comes to mental health. Um, everyone is that still has a job, virtually all of them are working from home, um, which contains some certain stress, stresses, additional stresses, and also factors um, for heightened anxiety and heightened mental health issues, you know, like isolation um, in particular. And then you have, on the other hand, a lot of people that are still at work are being exposed to the illness or work dangerous or high stress jobs in the first place. So really in kind of a worst case scenario when it comes to mental health, generally speaking. Um, how could the research you guys did be viewed and applied through the pandemic? Well, I, I think everything we're seeing today has we've sort of been coming towards this you may know that the united states for the last about 21 years has been seeing uh, an increase in what people frequently call diseases of despair that since literally 1999 seems to have been the cutoff point where we started seeing increases in depression 
suicidal attempts and completed suicides. Uh, the suicide rate for, for the first 20 years of my career uh, was going down pretty regularly. And then starting around 1999, it reversed and has gone up and has continued to go up. At the same time, We've seen uh, rates of addiction increasing, and of course, with the opioid epidemic, we've seen just an explosion of overdose deaths. So America has been struggling with these, uh, these uh, types of behavioral issues for about 20 years, but uh, COVID-19 appears to have just made that much, much worse. Uh, the National Suicide Hotline in March reported that they had seen an 891% increase in wow. calls. So, you know, a ninefold increase over last year. We know from prescription benefit man management companies that they're reporting increases in prescriptions for anxiety, depression, and sleep problems. We know alcohol sales have gone up by, I think, roughly 55% across the country. And unfortunately, calls to domestic violence helplines have also increased. So, you know, we're all, I think, acutely aware that this pandemic is increasing people's uh, fear, their anxiety, their depression. We already had what many are calling an epidemic of loneliness. Well, the lockdown sheltering in place is only making that worse. And when you talk about people with alcohol issues, most people in recovery from an alcohol or drug problem go to support group meetings, self-help group meetings. And not being able to go out to go to self-help meetings even though they're available now online, I think that's likely to really impact people's uh, recovery. And, uh, you know, the entire country, I think, is dealing with sort of a collective trauma. And we know, for example, people who are essential workers uh, are really struggling. There are a lot of first-person accounts of uh, nurses and doctors who are really struggling with the uh, COVID-19, the impact on their work. And uh, we're seeing an uptick in what's likely going to be a, a big wave of post-traumatic stress disorder. And I think that's going to impact all of American society. And what we found in our study, even though it, it was all, all the data were collected before the uh, pandemic hit, I think a lot of the uh, lessons are going to be the same. There's just going, going to be more urgency. For example, as we return to work from uh, lockdown, I think a lot of employees are going to need new accommodations because during this period, they may have developed, uh, say, an alcohol use problem, or they may become depressed or anxious, or they may have post-traumatic stress disorder. And these are things that employers frequently struggle with understanding and, and also are not sure how to accommodate. How do you help someone who's got a mental health issue? And at that point, you really need to work with a, a vendor or experts who can help to understand what kinds of limitations and restrictions each employee brings to the workplace following the uh, pandemic. 
And how do you accommodate them so they can do their essential job functions? And I, I think that's going to be a, a long-term uh, developing topic for us, especially because I think there's a pretty good likelihood COVID-19 is going to be with us for a long time and we may see other waves. So employers are going to have to find ways to support and accommodate their employees in a rapidly shifting and uncertain environment. I think that we've probably covered it, but I just want to make sure that our listeners understand, you know, there's a hierarchy of things that you have to do when you're faced with a crisis as an employer like this, you know, and many of us have experienced it. That's secure your cash flow, you know, make sure you can keep the doors open um, or, you know, the lights on, it's it's funny those metaphors don't really work anymore. <laughs> um, <laughs> make sure you can keep your business operating. Uh, make sure that you've got money to pay people. Make sure you know there's so many things that come before the what do we do about our employees' mental health. And you know you mentioned the long term issues at stake here. Uh, you talk about all those healthcare workers that are going to probably get PTSD. I mean that's a lifelong condition. That's something that takes years to develop and has massive consequences for everyone surrounding that person and that person's life. You know, getting the treatment early, getting the plan in place early, getting everything set as soon as you can can help just like it could help flatten the curve, taking these measures. If we had taken them a little bit earlier in our country, we could have gotten away with something a little bit less devastating. Um Getting these things in place as soon as you can can help you later down the road when when a lot of this stuff is going to come to a come to head. Yes, I think that's very true. Um, one of the things I'm aware of is and that concerns me greatly is that a lot of people seem to be acting as though reopening businesses is just a matter of setting a date and opening the door. And mm -hmm. we know we do a lot of uh, work with uh, people out on disability leave. And, and one of our main uh, services is providing return to work support. And we know that successful return to work requires planning. You, you don't just set a date and a time and let someone in. You have to have a, a, a plan. And that's obviously even more important now with uh, COVID-19 because you've got to have a plan that also includes things like uh, health and safety, uh, temperature checks, uh, social distancing. But the emotional, the mental health side of it is you also want to be able to have a plan that employees are aware of and that includes an estimated return to work date so that they're able to make any necessary arrangements. Uh, you know, for example, people with children whose schools may be closed even after the government orders ended, those people may need to make new arrangements or people with uh, sick family members. Uh, the way we usually approach it is that a return to work plan should have clearly defined clearly defined roles and responsibilities for each step in the process. And that usually involves both the employee and their direct supervisor and often the HR representative. And we want to set a reasonable expectation since uh, 
since safety considerations for both employees and their customers are probably going to dictate a slow, careful approach to your opening, even when the government restrictions are lifted. So you want to have a, a clear plan. And then with individual employees, you may need to review their essential job functions, usual du duties, work hours, and work environment, particularly because I think a lot of uh, people, as I said, are going to be returning to work with new limitations and restrictions. And you want to be able to accommodate them uh, either under ADA or even if it isn't an ADA issue, you want to be able to uh, support people so they're able to come back to work and feel that they matter and that the employer is, uh, is looking out for them. Well said. Thank you, Dan. It was, really, uh, it was really a pleasure speaking with you today. You too. I appreciate the time and I hope... Uh, we all got something from this. <laughs> I'm sure that our listeners will appreciate it. Remember, you can learn more about the research findings that we discussed today at the standard. Visit standard.com forward slash BH podcast for more information. And listeners, we're always interested in suggestions you might have for what we should cover next. Uh, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at HRWorks Podcast or with any thoughts or concerns you have about the podcast in general. Thank you for listening. This is Jim Davis with HRWorks.